Welcome back, everyone, to MX Asian American. Today, we have a very special guest, um, Simon. You want to introduce yourself first? Sure. My name is Simon Tam. I'm a musician, artist, and troublemaker. <laughs> I love that troublemaker. <laughs> I try and stir things up a bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So when I came across your post in Asian Hustle Network, I was really excited um, because I have I had heard of the slants. Um, and was like really interested in learning more. Um, so thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, just like tell us a little bit about how and where you grew up. I grew up in San Diego, California, kind of the early 80s, but ended up throughout my adulthood kind of moving all around the country. So, um, you know, I kind of call Portland, Oregon home, probably because I lived there for about 15 years. So it was also mm. the first place that I like chose to live. But in terms of like my childhood, I definitely identify with that Southern California area. Mm, okay. So like when did you first get into music or how were you influenced? Oh, I mean, music's been a part of my life for as long as I could remember. Like my parents have these home videos of me where as a kid, I would grab my dad's acoustic guitar. I jump up on the coffee table and start like strumming and yelling at the top of my lungs. <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I was like three years old or something like that. Wow. But I just, I think something in me knew that I wanted to make noise. I, I thought that, you know, musical was the vehicle to do that. Mm. And it wasn't until I was like maybe six or so that I started taking lessons with my cousins, my sister, like we all, you know, were taught piano, but I very quickly decided I didn't want that. I wanted to play uh, the, the bass guitar. And mm. so that's when I kind of, started officially learning how to play the instrument properly mm, no that's so cute I bet like people or your parents probably like bring up that video as like a joke during parties or something <laughs> I don't know if, where it is anymore I haven't seen it in a long oh. time <laughs> so I'm trying to find it just because I like I remember watching it and they used to talk about it but it's been a minute um so as you got into music through your like teenage years and then into adulthood uh, when did you decide to um create your own band I mean when I was in high school I was creating like a new band every week I think at one point <laughs> I was like in 10 different bands I don't know how many of them were actually realistic or <laughs> doing anything but I would say my first serious band was a band called the Rockaway Teens. I was in 10th grade. We probably did a little bit over 100 shows. We even ditched school to tour for a minute. Wow. We, you know, got like permission slips signed, like saying we were doing one thing and ended up doing something else. But that was a lot of fun. It was kind of like a Ramones pop punk kind of band. Mm -hmm. And coincidentally, it was also all like Asian American, although we mm -hmm. didn't think of it at the time as that because the drummer and uh, the the other musician in the band, they were both like half Hispanic and half like Filipino. Mm. And, you know, one of them ended up in the slants later on in life, but we would just play and sing songs and have a good time. It, it wasn't until like, you know, a few years later, once I was in Portland, that I decided to launch a project that was more focused on Asian American identity. Mm. You said you guys, you started this like more serious one in 10th grade. Um, what was like, I guess like your audience or um, did you get any like 
backlash or what was like your what I'm really curious about is like the opinion like your parents opinions on you doing this especially like <laughs> skipping school <laughs> uh, well my parents were not a fan they they wanted me super focused on schoolwork uh -huh. because they wanted me to go to college and you know eventually be a doctor mm -hmm. or like a computer engineer or something like that so everything else was considered a distraction no matter what it was whether mm -hmm. it was volunteer work or music or otherwise but i think they just kind of knew they couldn't stop me on the music front like i it was just something i had to do and so they kind of tolerated it and since i did pretty well in school they're okay with me doing shows on a regular basis. And when I eventually convinced them to let me, you know, kind of take a few days off of school so we can go up the coast of California and do shows, I think I got like a youth pastor to sign off on it and Whoa. like a bunch of adults because it was like, you know, we couldn't even rent cars. We, mm -hmm. we ended up booking this tour with the friends band and then we got their dad to drive us so he had to like make the case for my parents as well and i think since i kind of lined it all up the, and everyone else is on board they had a hard time saying no and mm -hmm. they're cool with it and you know i talked to all my teachers in advance got all the assignments and all that stuff lined up and mm. they, they were like right you're gonna be taking a family thing but they all kind of knew because it was me and my drummer we were in a lot of the same classes <laughs> they knew we were in a band and that's all we <laughs> talked about so they knew what was up uh-huh uh -huh. um what was kind of your if you remember like reasoning behind or like what kind of compelled you to like try to create a band like in high school in high school, I think we just wanted to be cool because, <laughs> you know, I was tired of getting beat up for being like a nerd, for being Asian or for being into mm -hmm. punk rock. Mm -hmm. And I thought like this would be the way to do it. Mm -hmm. But I think also something deep down inside of me, and I probably didn't realize this until I was an adult, was that really it was about expression. There were like these things mm -hmm. I was feeling, there were thoughts that I was thinking that I couldn't find a way to convey with just writing or speaking. And I mm. felt like music was the vehicle to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that would be like super influential, especially since like you were in your puberty years or like coming of age kind of. Um, yeah, and then you did say um, it was not until you moved to um, Oregon that you decided like to start your own project that was focused more around Asian American um, and Asian American music. Um, tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, so I dropped out of college to move to Portland mm -hmm. to join a punk rock band, which again, my parents were not thrilled about that one, but I'm sure. <laughs> I, I was going through a bunch of things and I think they finally in the end were supportive because they knew I was going through some pretty severe depression and thought that mm. this would be a way to, to address some of the things I was feeling. And that band, I love those guys. We're still friends to this day, but like after about a year or so there, they just weren't taking it seriously anymore. And so mm. it started frustrating me. And about that same time, I already had started thinking of this idea of like starting a new band that would kind of focus on the music I grew up with, which is like 80s new wave uh, synth pop music and thinking about it as some kind of vehicle to to express and to explore asian american identity so that was mm. 2004 when i got the idea and well 
the main vehicle for like connecting with people back then was myspace.com. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm kind of old. MySpace was the place. So I started put, posting bulletins and posting ads and then using all weekly ads as well as like, I, I mean, like I just didn't know any Asian people in Portland. Mm. It's, they call it America's whitest major city. It's over 92% white and mm-hmm. it was even more so back then. So what I did was I print out these big posters saying like Asian musicians wanted for this like rock synth pop band. And I would hang them up in like dim sum restaurants and like Asian bakery <laughs> and Fubon, which is like the Asian superstore, like supermarket. I just convinced all these people. I was like, I really want to do this. Like will you let me hang this up. And somehow through all those efforts uh, over the next two years, I started assembling people and eventually had enough of a lineup in 2006 to really begin writing music and you know getting ready to play shows and of course the name of the band was the slants that was the banner that we had chosen this way to kind of um, co-opt this stereotype that people have about asian americans and also just kind of inject it with new meaning Mm. how um so that was very a great effort on your part to like try to recruit members but um i would imagine like you probably had to do a sort of screening or like trying to like feel out if like a person would be a good fit um like how did you go about doing that also like how would how was like the response to your like massive outreach marketing (laughs) effort well because I wanted to take that band and and really like make it a serious project not just like Mm -hmm. a bunch of people jamming in the garage or going Mm -hmm. out for fun I really want to make some significant impact culturally with it i was looking for people with experience and Mm -hmm. so that's kind of already a pretty limiting filter on Mm -hmm. top of like wanting them to be asian or identify with asian american culture in some kind of way Mm -hmm. so it it, that's why it took me so long Mm -hmm. but i think the response was pretty good i mean like for the members that were were kind of fitting that criteria they and they were always like thrilled like saying like this is something I've always wanted. Like they, mm. we all shared stories of being tokenized in our respective groups. And so to have something that could, where we could be our whole selves. I mean, that was pretty, pretty special. Mm-hmm. Um, you did mention um, the name. So now I'm like very curious as to how that conversation came up and how you guys decided. So I thought of the name before I even had a band. It was wow. something... Like I was having, you know, I think about band names all the time, especially when I was younger. (laughs) And so I was like, I knew I had this project in mind. I started asking friends of mine in the area, like all my non-Asian friends, because I didn't have any Asian friends. I said, like, what's something you think all Asian people have in common? Mm. And they they would always say slanted eyes, which I was like, well, first of all, that's not true. Like not all Asian people have slanted eyes. And second of all, we're not the only people with slanted eyes. Uh But then I started thinking like, man, I was beat up and I was bullied as a kid for having these eyes. I always associated them with shame. So what if we could change it? Like where people who also identify with that same kind of story, like moved it from feelings of embarrassment to feelings of empowerment, like where we could be proud of our heritage, where we could take on the stereotype and say like, you know, this thing's pretty ridiculous to begin with. So what if we just really kind of flip the script and 
and gave us something that we could use to stand up for ourselves with. I think that's very, very admirable. And also, what a great name. Like, I love the name. And I know it has, like, come under a lot of controversy um, because of the trademark um, battle. Uh, but we will get to that. Um, yeah, I also, like, as a, you know, kid who liked punk rock, I mean, it, it was just sounded like an old, like, 80s punk band. Uh-huh. In fact, there was this amazing, like, all-girl punk band called the slits back in the day who also had a little bit of controversy with their name mm-hmm. but i i mean there were, there's like a long history of this in music and mm. even further back with music of artists saying like you know what we're gonna take ownership of this we're gonna mm-hmm. strip the power away from other people to use it against us mm. and then it becomes this just really cool badass reclamation effort and mm-hmm. i think i've always respected that mm-hmm um so once you have your band now um what were kind of the early days like trying to secure venues or performance spots um and trying to do shows things like that i mean the early days were really exciting it was both filled with possibility like just because it was so new and fresh and (laughs) with that came also frustration as well but but I think generally speaking, it was really exciting for us because we were just trying to figure it out as a band and everywhere we went, like we immediately caught people off guard because they weren't used to seeing an Asian American band. Like they all mm. thought we were from Japan or something. Mm. And I was like, no, we're like an Asian buffet. We got a little bit of everything, but like, <laughs> we all grew up here. So it was just really different. Like people just couldn't wrap their heads around it mm-hmm. and at the same time, I was looking for like non-traditional venues as well. So I would book us in addition to like rock and roll clubs and music halls and that sort of thing. We used to book anime conventions Wow! and, and like, it was just cause I went to an anime convention once, like someone invited me and I was just like, Whoa, there's all these like thousands of geeky white kids obsessed with Asian culture. What if like an Asian band actually played at this thing? Mm. And like my hunch was right. Like we booked one and the kids, it just went nuts. We would sell tons of merchandise and they really treated us really well. So we, we love that. And so we kind of combined touring these anime conventions with rock and roll clubs uh, pretty early on. And then, you know, just a lot of uh, Asian American organizations through the grapevine would find out about us and ask us to do their own street festivals or cultural events and that sort of thing. So we kind of had this like really interesting mix like as a musician i just you know someone who toured a lot of my life i had never experienced that before Mm -hmm. but in in doing so we realized that hey we weren't just a band anymore like whether we liked it or not people are going to judge us by our ethnicity like kids are writing us letters saying like thank you thank you for for giving me a reason to be proud of my heritage a lot of them identified with my own stories of bullying and so i was like we got to just step this thing up and so we started enrolling in classes on counseling, on anti-Asian racism, uh, anti-racism work, on diversity, equity, inclusion, because we were dealing with kids with trauma. And we started leading like equity discussions across this country. So in the at night, we would play these rock and roll clubs. And in the daytime, we were doing like workshops of kids and working on like anti-bullying programs. Wow, that is so cool. Um, just like 
having the insight or even like um insight and foresight to realize that like whoa we are becoming something much bigger and we should be responsible um for these people who are like looking up to us um and is that like sort of um the beginning or like impetus to the nonprofit work that you guys are doing right now I think all along we were like planting seeds for this thing, but we mm. just didn't realize what we were doing quite yet. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, the reality is like most of my music career is just taking it like one day at a time, figuring <laughs> out like what those next steps are, just trying to survive. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I mean, I just remember how much I struggled growing up with like just the lack of any kind of uh connection to this art form that I loved because I grew up watching MTV when, when they had like music videos nonstop, Mm -hmm. I would subscribe to Rolling Stone and spin magazine and paste and none of them ever had anyone that looked like me. And so it was just like kind of mind boggling, like the absence of any kind of social mirror. And I just wanted to be for the next generation for those kids who were like following us. I wanted to be for them what I never had. And Mm. so that maybe that meant like delivering these over the top rock and roll shows to show that we could do it. But it also meant like saying, Hey, I see you where you are. I, I, I feel your pain because I went through that myself and giving them kind of a way out or a way to experience it. And then at the same time, because we were getting a lot of press, like, I mean, we're, we're getting a lot of spin on NPR and a bunch of radio stations and I, I just knew that we needed to use our platform for something more. So that's why we started doing these workshops for allies, for cultural community groups and that sort of thing. And then when like nonprofits were bringing us in, they of course would invite like their partners and, and everyone else in the community. And so we were just like, okay, let's, let's use this and find a way to drive more attention to these issues that we care about. Mm. I really respect some, the, the like amount of care that you guys have put into not only the music, but also the mission to support the community in different ways. Um, so we are now going to talk about <laughs> the um, trademark um, fight um, in the US legal system, uh, which like most people probably have heard about this, um, but just like your take on your side of the story. Yeah, I, I mean, it's funny, like how far this thing goes back now. It was like 2009 when I became friends with an intellectual property attorney. They knew that, you know, we were making a lot of progress in our career. Like most of us had stepped away from our full-time jobs to just focus on the band and developing the band. And about that time period, this attorney says, Hey, have you thought about registering your trademark? Because like a lot of times we don't realize that you, it's very, very difficult to get signed to a record label unless you have a registered trademark. And some mm-hmm. licensing agencies and other companies won't actually work with you until they know that you can secure your rights. And so for us, we needed the rights for our name. And so I said, okay, let, let's go ahead and do this. We apply. And a couple months later, we get a response with the government denying our application. They said that our name was disparaging to persons of Asian descent. Mm. And that's what kicked off this super long battle that lasted 
you know, almost a decade long of us going back and forth with him. But it, it originally kind of started with this. And what's funny is like at the time, I didn't know anything about the law. I, I just thought, I thought it was kind of a practical joke from the attorney. And I was like, you know, you got to be kidding me. Like, <laughs> like they're saying we're racist to ourselves. And <laughs> yeah. I was like, okay, what kind, of, what kind of evidence do they have? Like, this is the US government. They got unlimited resources. What do they bring into the table to prove this? Mm-hmm. And he says, urbandictionary.com. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and with this wiki joke website, they decided to deny us our rights for it. And so we started appealing. Like we, we fought back. We got activists. We got executive directors of numerous Asian American organizations. We got independent national surveys. We got a linguistics expert who wrote about the history of the term slant and the power of reappropriation, all this stuff, like thousands and thousands of pages of evidence. And the government continued to double down. They said, no, no, it's not good enough. And we finally asked them why we said, what is it about the slants? Like, why do you have a problem with this? Because you've registered slant as a trademark, like about 800 times. So what is different about the band? That's when the government said, it's because you are too Asian to use this mark. And that, you know, they're basically their, their words were, it is incontestable that the applicant is of Asian descent and part of an Asian band. Therefore, there's an association with this disparaging term. In other words, they're saying like, because we were so Asian and we had Asian artwork and we had pictures of Asian people on our website, which, you know, was our band, that people would automatically assume the racial slur instead of any other definition in the dictionary. But that's a more convoluted way of saying anyone can register the slants as long as they're not Asian, because the moment they're Asian you know, they, they kind of crossed the line of being too Asian. And we did some digging and it turns out uh, that same rationale had been used many times before. So like every racial slur you could think of for an Asian person was a registered trademark by non-Asians. But when they, when Asian people like tried to apply, for example, this guy in Atlanta, Georgia had these t-shirts that said chink pride. Uh, he was swiftly denied even though chink was registered 12 times or like (gasps) again and again, it just goes down the line. And so we're like, Hey, that's not cool. Like it should be up to the community, not some random lawyer in the government who doesn't have any connection to us. And so that's why we pressed on and continued to appeal and fight. Wow. And I am so glad that you eventually did win the fight because this is like, listeners can't see my face, but I am like, (laughs) shaking my head like it is unbelievable how like blatant the white supremacy is like in the u.s legal system yeah i i mean it it's took a minute <laughs> like uh, a little bit over eight years we had to go to the u.s supreme court oh. but uh you know we we did win there unanimously and mm-hmm. and the courts kind of realized that hey it should be ultimately up to the market it should be up to communities that are affected And not the kind of whims of a single person, because like the entire time we were fighting, even though we gave them thousands and thousands of Asian Americans who signed onto our cause and supported us, the government chose to ignore all of that. And they proudly, (laughs) like even they even 
admitted it that they did not consult a single Asian American on our wow. issue because they said they didn't need to. And that's how like, that's, that's, I mean, that's privilege, right? That's how mm-hmm. blind they were. They're like, oh, we know better for you. So we're going to mm-hmm. protect you from yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's just ridiculous because like, you know, we were trying to do something. We were trying to create social change using the term and the way they were handing down this law is the same, same thing. There was a disparate impact on communities who are traditionally marginalized. Mm-hmm. So like feminists who are reappropriating all, uh, all range of terms were like getting rejected, but porn companies who are exploiting women were getting registered trademarks without a, you know, anyone like batting an eye. And so we're like, the whole system is benefiting those with more power and privilege mm-hmm. and money, mm-hmm. like people who can afford to fight. Meanwhile, we're just struggling at the bottom. So we are like, we got to level the playing field here. It just makes me so mad. And like, honestly, not much has changed. Um, like That's even true. in 2022 <laughs> now, uh, which is crazy. Um, well, as like with the rise in like more publicity and like success with the slants, um, do you like how did band members feel about the success? Was there like a pressure to be a specific way? Was there hate against you guys? And how did you guys deal with that? Well, the biggest pressure probably came from the legal battle because Mm -hmm. like it was sucking up all of our resources and a lot of my time. And unfortunately, several band members left as a result. They're just like, hey, we love what you're doing, but we wanted to play music, not just be stuck in some endless legal battle. Mm-hmm. In fact, I had to go and get extra jobs. Like I had to leave being a full-time musician to take on work so I could pay all the legal bills to, oh, to fight geez. this thing. And so I think it really slowed us down quite a bit, even though we were getting like a lot of publicity. Like, I mean, we we're like, I don't know, the front page of the New York times and Washington post. We we're on the, the daily show NPR all the time. But people who consume those things and news about those things didn't necessarily like buy records or buy tickets to our show, like a very, very small percentage of people did. And so there was a bit of turnover in the band. And meanwhile, it like public perception was also a bit tough because at the time um, I had two kind of camps against me in this. Number one, uh, white supremacists really didn't like me. They really didn't like the band. Uh, you know, I'd done a couple of TED talks on like combating racism mm-hmm. and uh, they didn't like that. So I got doxxed a few times and they would wow. do things like key my car or drag oh trash across my front yard or like threaten me or like threaten my employers and things like that. So that was like kind of one <laughs> thing that I was holding. And the other were people who were afraid that if I won, that it would actually legitimize racism because like groups like the Washington football team would be able to keep their name. And even though their name technically wasn't in danger. And so it would take another couple of years after I won for people to realize that you could still create change. You just can't leave the power making uh, levers in the offices of the trademark office. Like that's not where it ought to be, but Mm -hmm. people are really afraid and understandably so. And so I was just kind of dealing with a lot of contention um, for, for multiple angles for a good, good number of years, per, pro, especially like the last like three or four years of it. 
Oh my gosh, you sound like a Superman. Now they're like, <laughs> you're telling me all this. <laughs> I don't know about so that. Many, <laughs> so many things at once. So like, I, I'm sure it was like really, really tough when your band members, like some band members left and then you had to like start recruiting again. Um, like how was the second recruiting process? Um, was it easier or like harder than the first time? I mean, so bands go through a lot of turnover anyway. Like that that's not like weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just went through a lot of members because of like how active we were and because these big shifts in, you know, our focus. Mm-hmm. By the time 2014, 2015 rolled around, I just knew that if we were going to bring uh, going to be bringing people on that they needed to be absolutely serious. So mm-hmm. I actually made the application process even tougher. Like wow. we had an application on our website and people had to fill out like a, a couple page application, let's say wow. with, with like a lot of questions, including a couple of like essay questions about like what their goals were, what they wanted to accomplish experiences that they had with like API identity. And I wanted to really understand where people were coming from. Mm-hmm. And then after they went through that, we would actually rent a music venue out and for like a whole day and have people audition with us on stage in front of a camera. And then we would interview them. So if they made it through all that, and it turns out that like it was a good fit, they could perform and, you know, they had uh, similar values and passion as us, then, then we would invite them in. So I had to do this. And basically, you know, by the time we ended up in uh, at the Supreme court in 2017, I had a hundred percent turnover. Every, every original member of the band had left except for me. And Mm -hmm. so I had to go through this process uh, several times. Wow. Um, So when the fight was finally, finally over, um, what was the first feeling that you got? So I was actually super exhausted (laughs) throughout most (laughs) of this time period. And I was probably even more so on the day I found out Mm -hmm. because, uh, you know, Supreme Court decisions are issued out about nine in the morning. Uh, East mm-hmm. Coast time. I was in, I was in Portland, Oregon at the time, so West Coast time. So at like a little bit past six in the morning, my phone was blowing up, and I I, I rolled over and looked, and I had over seven hundred notifications on my phone. And so I was like, okay, I guess something happened, and I was just a little bit like out of it. But when I finally looked, I first thing I did is I hop on Twitter and and I see that NPR wrote like. Um, you know, the Supreme Court rules in favor of the slants and the ACLU was tagging me. And, and I was just like, I, I felt a bit of a relief. And I think that moment was also extra special. Like our decision was released on June 19th. So Juneteenth and before Juneteenth was even like widely known as a thing. Like I, I knew of it just from my work in activism communities. And I just thought like how appropriate, like took forever and then some, and finally the, the news got to me. And so uh, it was, it was a bit of relief. It was exhaustion. It was like a lot of things all at the same time, but I would say it probably took, it took a little bit to process everything because like, it, mm. it, it's hard if you're just like in fighting mode the whole time, like when it mm-hmm. stops, it's uh, a little bit of a shock. Learn how to relax again. <laughs> Yeah, like there was this moment, um, like 
I mean, I ha- at that point, like a lot of journalists had my contact info. So I was just like in nonstop interviews and things all day long. Wow. And my phone was perpetually on a, on a charger. I was running to news stations and things. And I remember at one point it was the afternoon and I, you know, my mom had tried calling me a couple of times, but I just couldn't get, uh, I was like in the middle of interviews and finally I, I call her back and she's just like, you know, gong she, gong she, like, congratulations. Like mm-hmm. I heard that you won. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, I'm sorry. It's just been really busy. And then she says this thing that just breaks me. And she says, I hope you can smile again. Oh. And I was like, what do you mean? And she's just like, you used to like always be so happy and joke around a lot. And, and, and all I, like the last couple of years, all you do is worry and you're, you're always getting sick because you're always just worried and working so hard. And I just want my son back again. And now that's over. I hope you can, you can be yourself again. And it was just like, I didn't realize like the toll it was taken on me mm-hmm. to kind of go through all this and for my mom to like call it out, I mean, it was like, yes, yeah, savage, you know, like, I was like, whoa, okay, I, I need to like get some priorities aligned here. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a little bit of a relief after you won. And um, that was what, what, 2017, you said? Yeah, 17. Um, and then the next year, you guys decided to start your own nonprofit, the Slants Foundation. Um, what kind of influenced that? Like, you've already been doing a lot of this, like, activist work before. So what influenced you guys to, like, finally start establishing an organization? I think part of me knew that, especially towards the end of 2017, that my time with the band was kind of waning. That mm. I just wasn't feeling the same like passion and excitement. Plus, I'd been living on the road for like 15 years. I was ready Whoa. for some stability. Uh-huh. And so I wanted to start putting those steps into place. You know, we had seen a lot of gaps in the nonprofit world mm-hmm. where I thought we could kind of serve to try and innovate that area a bit, especially like with the arts. Cause like, you know, most of the time arts funding. Like that, it, it, it kind of tend the resources tend to go to the same people, and very few Asian American artists are getting any kind of support at all, except for what they call the fine arts, like mm. classical music or that sort of thing. But like people who are really doing some innovative things, oftentimes get passed up because people thought it was too risky. And so I thought, mm-hmm. like, we need to change that up and also pair that funding with mentorship and some guidance. And so we started uh, recruiting for board of directors of other kind of like artists, activists that I knew. And I think the first year we were, it's mostly paperwork and tossing around ideas <laughs> and, and trying to figure out like, what is it that we actually want to do? But like once 2019 uh, took off, we, we launched our first scholarship program. And then I think in the next like 2019 and 2020, we really kind of felt that the right momentum, right swing where, where things started feeling good. And we found out like all the areas that we can really shape the nonprofit world and the arts world using the work that we were doing. So it, it just took a minute, but like, I think 2018 was just kind of like the, 
just a great time to really assess where we wanted to go and and before we kind of like went all in on it Mm. so did like all the rest of the band members also transition to nonprofit work too or well the initial board of directors had me uh ken shima who's our our lead singer at the time and joe xiang who's a guitarist and so uh those were kind of the core members at, at in 2018 anyway and then by the time 2019 rolled around i had already moved away from portland and so we weren't playing all that much we were just doing the kind of occasional weekend shows where like i would fly out to them mm-hmm. uh, but I, I in 2019 i released a copy of my memoir and i spent most of that time on the road like with with a book or uh, sometimes I would bring Joe with me and he would perform with me as I gave talks or did like book signings. So we'd kind of do music and, and, and books. And then really like that whole effort was like a way to fundraise to, to, to launch our nonprofit properly. Mm. Um, so what has been sort of, I guess, like the greatest difficulty so far, but also like the greatest reward in doing um in establishing the Splants foundation i mean i think the greatest difficulty is just you know resources mm-hmm. you know i tried applying for a number of grants it's tough when you're just starting out people kind of want some history first mm-hmm. so even though i had great contacts a lot of them were like oh you're you just got your irs determination so we had to basically fund this thing ourselves. So I basically funded our nonprofit with like book sales and by giving talks and that sort of thing. And resources is oftentimes kind of the greatest challenge for most nonprofits. Uh, and mm-hmm. the second thing is like, we were really audacious in our goals at the beginning of 2020. We were like, okay, we're going to launch this new program where we're going to fund artists to go on tour. And then March 2020 hit and we're like, okay, we're not going to do that. Wow. <laughs> you know, yeah. The, there's this major pandemic. Also, there's a ton of anti-Asian racism. And mm-hmm. so we we're like, how do we pivot from this? And so we started funding works of art that would address anti-Asian racism using art and using art that would provoke a dialogue and invoke compassion and storytelling. Cause we were like, you know, we're, we're not about like just confronting people in, in ways that don't move the needle. We want to be able to shift the culture. And sometimes that means developing empathy and developing a conversation. And we think art is a really, really good way of doing that. So the greatest challenge actually forced us to do better, to step it mm. up and do mm-hmm. something different than what other people are doing. Mm. And it just became a really great learning lesson for us because then we could launch all kinds of programs we were fiscally sponsoring podcasts and films and theaters and and doing all kinds of really interesting stuff that we probably wouldn't have done if it wasn't for covid hitting Mm -hmm. yeah i was actually just about to ask like right after this question like um how did you guys handle covid and like did you pivot some sort of like types of programming or like types of mentorship you um offered but no that sounds really great yeah and And we got a we did a ton of like virtual events which i don't think we even thought of as a like as a thing like in the beginning Mm -hmm. of 2020 because no one was really doing virtual events like other Mm -hmm. than i don't know like a business webinar or something like that but it became really fun and we helped coach a number of artists to get ready to do virtual concerts so that they could continue doing those things and 
it was just a lot of fun. We got to work with all kinds of great artists and actors and people doing interesting stuff. And then we also started using those events because other nonprofits saw how we were producing our live events. And they started asking us to either produce uh, events for them or host events for them. So that was really kind of cool. Like uh, most of the performers were people who had been on one of our events were just saying like we had run these like virtual events better than anything they'd ever seen. And so we were able to like kind of provide all these tutorials and help other nonprofits out and helping them level up their events as well. Mm-hmm. And um, what has been the most rewarding thing that you have gotten out of this work? I think the most rewarding thing that we've gotten out of the Slants Foundation has hands down been meeting the huge diversity of artists that are in our community. I don't think we realize that like certain trends pop up, like for a little while, especially with YouTube, people are like all about Asian American, like singer songwriters who are doing covers on their acoustic guitar. And it's like, Mm -hmm, that's mm -hmm. cool. But there's also rock bands and hip hop artists and filmmakers doing some really groundbreaking stuff. And so we've been able to just see just the vast diversity of like how people are approaching that their respective crafts. Mm-hmm. And it's always inspirational to me. And also just hearing all kinds of stories of people incorporating not only their Asian American identity, but the other aspects of who they are, like folks who are fighting for things uh, revolving like queer identity or disability mm-hmm. or just um, all these kind of unique experiences that we have as human beings to show that, like we're not just a monolithic group, but we're just this incredibly diverse and talented uh, group of people who can make really great art as well. Like none of our artists are just, you know, using uh, Asian American identity as a crutch, as a way to get attention. Like mm. that's just folded in as just a, a, an authentic part of the experience. They're making really good art for, for art's sake. And on top mm. of that, it's made even more special because now there's a way to connect with a huge population of people in a new and different kind of way. Mm-hmm. Part Parts of like foundations like yours and like other programs or mentorship programs is like the fact that it connects people, I think is like one of the greatest, greatest um, things that they do. Um, because especially during COVID was when like we realized, wow, we really can use this like online platform in totally different ways. Um, and you can still connect with people all over the world. I think one thing about the Zoom stuff is that you can meet so many people all over the world and not just like in your specific location. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we got artists in like Canada, Australia, and Taiwan, Japan, and it's so cool like to, hear about their experiences mm-hmm. and like that our artists can create their own network in fact some of them started their own like discord channels and facebook wow. groups of <laughs> artists like not even inviting us even though we're the ones that brought them together wow. but, yeah, that's <laughs> so it's cool like it, it makes me really really proud and excited to see that we're just starting the conversation but people are taking that movement and running mm-hmm. with it and mm-hmm. and that's just that's what you want. Like, we don't want mm-hmm. people only dependent on our resources or our advice. We want them 
to develop their careers in a way that is sustainable and it's mm-hmm. scalable mm-hmm. and also in a way that continues to pay forward by impacting other artists and, and, and people who are coming up and developing their craft too. Mm-hmm. No, for sure. Um, so we are coming up to my last question, which is a big, big question. Um, just like your thoughts on the future of the Slam Foundation and then also the Asian and Asian American community as a whole. You know, I've been thinking about this for a minute. Um, I was thinking the other day how every tidal wave begins with a ripple, just the mm. smallest movement of water that mm. could be very subtle. And that ripple is created just from tiny individual drops of water. Mm. It's really powerful when you think about what intentions we bring to our communities, particularly through the arts or any kind of active expression. And I would say like civic engagement, voting, like those are all forms of expression as well. And how each of them have that potential to shift the conversation. And the cool thing about waves is that they don't just like reshape the very ocean that they sit in, but the land that they press up against. Mm -hmm. We have the ability to shift culture and systems that we grew up with like the world does not have to be the way we experience it we can be a part of shifting it and i think that is the ultimate mission of the slants foundation but it's also our burden and responsibility and opportunity as people in this world as well Mm. wow that was beautiful (laughs) thank you um no thank you so much i have learned so much and really enjoyed um talking to you learning more about the slants and the slants foundation um any last words or if no last words just like where listeners can find you online (laughs) (laughs) uh if People want more information on the Slants Foundation. You can go to theslants.org. That's probably the easiest way. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it connects to all of our social channels and that sort of thing. And of course, I'm always reachable through that as well. I, I think one of the things that we wanted to do as as a band is like always be accessible to people as much as possible to no. to directly respond. We've never had like a like I don't know comms team or something like that. Like mm. every single thing we put out. <laughs> We, we respond to it directly because like, you know, those are, again, those are the things that I wish I had when I was growing up. I was like, I want to be able to speak directly with, with people and, and hear their stories. And so mm-hmm. we try and do that for others as well. And so if anyone wants to know more, like, feel free to hit me up. <laughs> I can totally attest to that because I totally cold messaged you and I was like, this is not going to happen. <laughs> but I was so surprised when you like replied to me, it was very responsive. And yeah, it was just very cool. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> no, thank you. Awesome. I will link everything in the show notes. Um, and yeah, I just so much so grateful for this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me.